So we are getting ready to finish up Luke. If you remember, last week we looked at the two fellows who were on the road to Emmaus, and uh, they, Jesus met up with them, and we looked at all that. Now, where we're at in Luke's Gospel, here in Luke 24, starting in verse 36, uh, these two fellows from Emmaus have shown back up. They're, they're uh, giving their report about their experience, who they saw on the road, who they ate with, how they recognized him when he broke the bread. Uh, those who are gathered there also are sharing their very same experiences, what they have seen, what they have heard the angels tell them. And uh, even a couple of them, uh, like these two men from Emmaus, such as Mary Magdalene and even Peter, they have seen Jesus, and so they're all talking about this, they're all discussing this. And so as this little group is gathered together and they're all abuzz with Jesus uh, being the center of their conversation, look who shows up. Right in the very midst of them, uh, Jesus shows up, the resurrected Lord himself shows up. And that's where we're at in verse 36. So let's take a look at Luke 24, 36 through 37. And he says here, and as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Uh, But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a spirit. So the very first words that come from uh, Jesus' mouth is intended to uh, settle the agitated waters of their minds, right? He says to them, Peace be unto you. Right? Peace be unto you. Uh, this is the very same word he said to him prior to his crucifixion in the upper room in John fourteen twenty seven. He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. And let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So, peace personified is now in the midst of these of these disciples of these gals and guys that are there uh, talking about the the events and and what they have seen and heard uh, but yet um, their reaction is far from a peaceful one isn't it <laughs> it really is it's far from a, a peaceful one all these folks that are are gathered together now to me uh, this is um, um, totally normal. In fact, to me, uh, this is um, a, a human reaction that I think is uh, the most natural thing possible. I mean, put yourself in their place. You're sitting there talking, and then, all, and then all of a sudden, right there in the midst, right there in the center of the group, who shows up? But Jesus, right? So that, to me, uh, to me, this uh, this gives some authenticity. To me, as far as this is concerned, just the way these these folks re- responded. Luke uses a couple of words here. Uh, he says uh, they were uh, terrified. Now, Luke uses this same word terrified uh, one other time in his gospel. In Luke chapter uh, 21, 9, he writes, uh, But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, he says, Be not terrified, uh, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. So the idea of the terrified is the is that is that uh, being overtaken by the impulse to want to flee 
from danger, wanting to flee uh, from alarm, and you know, so that's what I'm thinking is one of the is one of the reactions. You know, my darling wife, in the early years of our marriage, I worked uh, late shift or second shift, so I would come home, and we had a little cloak co- closet right there in the entranceway of our house, and she would wait for me in that closet. So when I opened the door, she would jump out at me, and of course I. Uh, I startled easily, so I jump about three feet in the air, right? I'm picturing the same kind of response here. See, what should have tipped me off about my wife is the smell of brimstone in the air, but I never picked up on that. But anyway, these, these people, they probably startled, they probably jumped. To me, that's a totally normal, normal reaction. Another word that Luke uses is that they became affrighted. You don't hear that word much anymore, do you? But the word affrighted, that means to, uh, to cause to tremble or even cause to, to fall down. Again, Luke uses this same word in Luke 24, 5. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? This was the reaction of the women when they saw the angels. Right, So they just kind of fell to the ground. It may be that some of these folks, they may have dropped to the ground. They were so startled. I mean, I've seen that on some of these um, America's funny, funny, Funniest Videos or whatever it is. Somebody, what is the person, after they get frightened, they fall to the ground? I, I totally can see some of these folks doing that very thing. Uh, actually dropping to the ground, being so startled. Again, to me, this speaks of authenticity. I mean, this is stuff, you know, if this was a made-up story, those are details, you know, that uh, I think would, would have been missed. So this, this to, to me, is uh, totally the, the natural response of, a, of somebody who's been startled. Something else about their uh, startled state of mind is they also made the wrong assumption, didn't they? Yeah, they made the wrong assumption. What did they think they saw? A spirit or a ghost or a phantom or a specter or whatever word you want to, you want to use. Yeah, they supposed that they had seen a spirit or a ghost. Uh, way back in the book of Job, there was another man by the name of Eliphaz who was a friend of Job. He talks about seeing a ghost. And listen to what this Eliphaz says back here in Job 4, 13 through 16. He says, in thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth on men, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. So that's kind of what we're seeing here. He says, then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up, right? It stood still. But this is, listen to what he says here in verse uh, 16 of Job 4. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before my eyes. There was silence and I heard a voice saying. Notice how vague he was when he saw this spirit. He couldn't discern what it was or who it was uh, that he was looking at. It was very, you know, this image was uh, just, he wasn't able to, to really see what it was that he was seeing. Now I bring this up 
to make a contrast between what Eliphaz dreamt and what these people saw when Jesus showed up. Because when Jesus showed up, uh, yeah, they made a, a, a supposition that this was a spirit, but were they looking at a spirit that they couldn't discern the form of? No, they were not. They were looking at the actual resurrected uh, Jesus Christ. That's what they were looking at. This was not something they could not discern, you know, what am I seeing? It's just that it was such a sudden thing that, you know, they were surprised. They were, they were startled. You know, this is not the first time that these disciples thought that Jesus, they were seeing a spirit. In Mark 14, 26, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. Right? It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear, but straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, as I be not afraid. Alright? Hey, I can't blame the guys. Right? Who does that? Who walks on water? Who walks on water? I'll tell you who walks on water. Uh, the Creator <laughs> walks on water, right? And the Creator commanded that water, Hey, you provide me a solid footing for me to walk on. Yeah, only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. So, uh, so why did Jesus um, appear in such a dramatic fashion? Do you ever think about that? Why didn't Jesus go up to the door and, like Peter did, "Hey guys, let me in"? Why did he just suddenly appear before these folks like he did? Why such a, a dramatic appearance? Any thoughts on that? Well, I think because these folks labored under the very same thing that the folks, the two men going to Emmaus. They were slow to believe, weren't they? They were slow to believe, just like the two guys going to, to Emmaus. They were slow of heart to believe. And I believe they needed this supernatural appearance of Jesus Christ in their midst to kind of shake them up a little bit. Now, how many times have we heard about a lost family member or a lost friend going through a trial, and what is it you almost hear every time? Well, maybe God can use this situation to get their attention so that they would be sensitive to the gospel. Have we ever heard that or said that? Well, yeah. Yeah, because sometimes we're so hard-headed and we're so obstinate that sometimes we need a smack upside the head to get our attention. We do, sometimes we do. I mean, think about it. They had the testimony of the empty tomb. They had the words of the angels. Uh, They had the eyewitness account of Mary Magdalene. Even Peter himself saw it. Now these two guys from Emmaus show up, and what are they still doing? They're still debating. They're still wondering. They're still questioning about everything they've seen and they heard because they're slow in heart to believe. Slow in heart to believe. Something else about this matter uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians one twenty two that the Jews require a sign, don't they? Yeah, the Jews require a sign. Uh, this has been typical of the Jewish people clear back in Moses' day. 
When Moses was talking to the Lord in the burning bush, and the Lord was sending Moses back to deliver his people from Egyptian bondage, Moses said in Exodus 4.1, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. So what did God tell Moses? I'm going to give you signs. And you'll perform these signs in front of the children of Israel. And by these signs, they'll know that you are the one that I've sent to them to deliver them. Now, let me ask you a question about those folks. Even with all the signs, didn't they still struggle? Didn't they still struggle to believe that that the Lord would deliver them? That God would provide for them in the wilderness? Yes, they did. In fact, God himself says that they are a stiff-necked people. They're a stiff-necked people. So even even with all these signs, these stiff-necked people failed to trust in the Lord. And I think uh, Jesus is doing the very same thing here with his disciples. Remember, what was the what was the sign that Jesus gave to the Pharisees concerning himself? He said, "This is a wicked generation." And you guys keep asking me for signs. He says, I've been performing miracles. I've been preaching the word of God. What's it going to take? He says, this is the only sign you're going to get. You remember what that sign was? Yeah, the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so will also the Son of Man be, right? The disciples, were they Jews or Gentiles? Jews. They were getting the sign of Jonah. They were getting the sign of Jonah. A, a better than Jonah showed up in the midst of them. So that's why this dramatic uh, entrance of Jesus. And Jesus presents his body to them uh, for examination. He says, he says, look, look at me. Touch me, handle me. And look what verse 41 says, Luke 24, 41. And while they... Yet believed not for joy and wondered. Even their joy proved to be an impediment to their faith. Even their joy proved to be an impediment to their faith. You remember a little while back when um, Pastor Brian showed the videos of the returning service persons, the moms and the dads coming back from the military, and how some of these moms and dads showed up like at a school function. And some of the kids or even some of the wives when they saw their loved one. Didn't some of them, didn't some of them just kind of stand there and stare? Right? Because they were so filled with wonder and joy they couldn't comprehend. Hey, that's dad. Or that's mom standing there. The same thing with these folks. To me, this is, this is so human, so natural. Again, this is so authentic about Jesus' resurrection. So authentic. You know, I've read commentaries where people are really hard on these people. You know, how can they not believe Jesus, blah, 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 blah. No, to me, this is authentic. This is totally human. Totally human. He says here in Luke twenty four thirty eight, And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? He says, Behold my hands and my feet, 
It is I myself, he says, handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. He says, guys, examine me. Touch me. Handle me. It says here they were being controlled by troubled thoughts. Troubled thoughts. The word troubled uh, speaks of an inward agitation of the mind. You know, it's like taking a... They were trying to put all the pieces... It's like taking a, a, a puzzle box. You know, that box, that frustrating thing that people put together that's got 500 pieces... And they take that box and they shake it and shake it and shake it. That's what was going on in their minds. It wasn't fitting. It wasn't making any sense. And so their imagination was running wild. You know, a lot of us become prisoners to our troubled thoughts. A lot of us become prisoners to our troubled thoughts we permit our imaginations to run wild and and imagine all sorts of things what was it just this last week with the threat of the gas shortage did you see what some of those people were doing in a panic putting gasoline in plastic bags in plastic containers I saw one man putting gasoline in a cardboard box Why were they doing that? Because they were controlled by their troubled minds. We're seeing it in our own country today. People are driven by troubled minds, by anxious minds. They're prisoners of their imagination as it runs wild and all sorts of things. And their fears overwhelm them. And when that happens, you become a prisoner to your fears. Philippians 4 6 says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Peace isn't the absence of trouble, folks. Peace is the presence of God in your heart and your mind. That's where your peace comes from. Do you know the God of peace? then your fears, don't let your fears make you prisoner. You have God's peace. As a further act of assurance that it was himself, as they were all kind of gawking at at him, he invites them, hey, handle me. Look at the nail prints in my hands and my feet. You know, Uh, he wants to assure them that the peace of God was in their very presence. You know, the Apostle John writes about this. In fact, that's what uh, Pastor Brian's getting ready to, to uh, teach us from is the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. John was there. John was there. He was the one who saw Jesus. And I don't know, because the scripture doesn't say this, so excuse me for presuming. But I'm thinking, if I were the Apostle John, what, what one thing did the Apostle John do at the Lord's Supper, at the Last Supper? What did he do? 
he put his head on right on the chest of Jesus and he heard the heartbeat of God didn't he and what was John referred to as the one whom yeah he was loved the beloved John right now I'm thinking if 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 I were John and Jesus offered me to handle him that's exactly what I'd do you bet I would you bet I would I would grab a hold of his hands I would grab a hold of his feet and I would do what Mark does all the time I would even try to hug him (laughs) I'd even want to hug him you know we're going to see Jesus one of these days and you know what I hope I hope he lets me hug him now there's going to be a lot of people wanting to hug him but I'll be willing to stand in line for that I'll be willing to stand in line with that I mean think about it guys if there's someone who you've been separated from for, for a long time someone that's very near and dear to your heart and they show up again what do you want to do yeah you want to embrace them you want to reconnect physically with them I, that's what I'm seeing John doing that's what I'm seeing John doing And these folks were so overcome with joy they could hardly take it all in. Even when offered the the opportunity to touch him and to examine the nail prints in his hands and his feet, I think they were all still, as the British say, gobstruck. Right? That's a pretty amazing thing that was going on here. And Jesus, being so gracious and knowing the human heart so perfectly as he does in order to assure them that it was himself uh, the next thing he does (laughs) no spirit would do you know what he asks for hey you guys got anything to eat really you guys got anything to eat Luke uh, 24 41 and while they yet believed not for joy and wondered he said unto them have you here any meat And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb and he took it and and did eat before him. I don't know, guys. I don't think spirits need to eat. I don't think ghosts chow down on cheeseburgers. I don't think specters crave Sonic. Right? This, to me, is, again, just so natural. You know, here they are, they're handling him and they're still wondering and Jesus says... The most human thing. Hey, you guys got something to eat? Right? You guys got something to eat? You know what? Just as the Apostle John wrote about handling, Peter remembers this. He remembers this. Because when he was preaching to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and he was talking to Cornelius and he was preaching the gospel, he says here in uh, Acts 10, 39, And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before God. Verse uh, 41, Even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. Isn't that funny? 
how certain things make an impression on other people. John remembers the touching, and Peter remembers the eating. But both of these are proof that it wasn't a ghost that these people were seeing, but it was a resurrected Jesus Christ standing there in the midst of them. Standing there in the midst of them. No ghost, but it was a body of flesh and bone. A body now free from the physical constraints of the terrestrial. A body that is now endowed with all the potentiality of the celestial. Pretty fancy talk there, isn't it? But that's what was going on. That's what happened. Now, think about this. We've already read about the grave wrappings all folded up in the tomb. It's as if he just passed right through them. Those grave clothes weren't going to keep him bound. He passed right through them. In John 10, 19, we read where the place that these guys were, these guys and gals were, the door was closed. It was locked. That didn't stop him. That didn't stop him. He came right in there. He came right through that door. Luke, the physician... He clearly testifies, he clearly records that what they saw, what they touched, what ate before them was a tangible body. Not a ghost, not a specter, not a phantom, not an imagination, not a delusion. And it's in this same body that he ascended into heaven and it's in this same body he's coming back again. This resurrected body. No ghost, no phantom, no specter. It was a risen Lord in his glorified body. Now, it wasn't long, it wasn't long that the church began facing some serious heresy. And Paul warned the church back there in uh, Acts chapter 20, In verse 30, he says, Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. In the book of Colossians, Paul dealt with those who were bringing in a lot of false doctrine. They were mixing uh, Eastern mysticism and legalistic Judaism. And they were challenging the preeminence of Christ, even challenging his deity. That's why Paul wrote that Colossian letter. And so, introduced into the church by these men was this teaching uh, called docetism. First John deals with this. We're going to get ready to go through that with Pastor Brian. And uh, this teaching came from Gnosticism that taught that Jesus and the Christ were two separate entities. Okay, And because of their teaching that materialism is evil and spiritual things are pure and the two can't come together like oil and water. Well, in the second century, this doctrine of docetism was first taught by a man by the name of Serapion, or Serapion of Antioch, who happened to be a bishop of the church. He was a church leader. And what he had done is he got a hold of some corrupt, some corrupt manuscripts and he started reading these corrupt manuscripts 
And he came up with this um, doctrine called docetism, which means illusion. Which means illusion. And he taught that Jesus' human body was an illusion. Was an illusion. A phantom. Again, that stemmed from matter was evil and spirit pure, and they just couldn't believe that both the body and the spirit could come together as one, as it did in Christ Jesus. And one of the major teachings of this false doctrine is that Jesus appeared, um, only appeared to be uh, flesh and bone. But that was an illusion, it was a phantom. It was a phantom. And that this Jesus who appeared in this form, the Christ entered this form. And the two never were one. The two were never were one. And when Jesus was on the cross and dying, they teach that this spirit of Christ left the body of left this supposed body. And it was Jesus the man that died on the cross and not the Christ. That's what he was teaching. Now, if Jesus didn't have a real body, then he didn't really die on the cross, did he? And if Jesus had no physical body, then he couldn't have risen physically from the grave in a new body. And without the actual death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, guess what? Yeah, we have no salvation. Our faith is vain. Our faith is vain. We're still in our sins. And what docetism teaches, it denies this union between the physical and the spiritual. And it even denies that Jesus ascended into heaven since he doesn't have a physical body. So it makes a very clear distinction between Jesus, the man, and Christ, the spirit. Now, that sounds pretty wild, doesn't it? But it's still, it's still taught today. It's still taught today. And yes, I'm going to name names. Because we need to know about this stuff. And I know you guys. I know As soon as I name this guy's name, I know that most of you, hopefully, know this guy is a whack job. I'll just put it that way. I know that's not very... Well, anyway. Kenneth Copeland. No! I'm sorry. I'm sorry, James. I'm sorry. Kenneth Copeland teaches the spirit of Jesus, accepting that sin and making it to be sin, he separated from God at that moment and became a mortal man capable of failure, capable of death, and Jesus was a reborn man in hell. Just like you and I are born again, he teaches that Jesus Christ became a born-again man in hell. That's a derivation of this docetism. Uh, this, people like Kenneth is the reason why John wrote in 1 John 4, 3, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, wherever you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Is there a division between Jesus and the Christ? No, because why? They're both one. They're both the same. They're both the same. Colossians 1, 17 20 
He is before all things, and by him all things consists, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or or things in heaven. So in him all, all fullness dwells. The same heretic also teaches that Jesus never claimed to be God. That uh, he claimed to walk with God, and he claimed that God was in him, but he never claimed to be God. So with that teaching, you might as well turn to the Gospel of John and just rip the whole Gospel out of your Bible. How many times did he say, I am, in that Gospel? Um, Kenneth Copeland and his group, Word of Faith teachers, teach that Jesus died spiritually. And that redemption doesn't come from Christ's death upon the cross, but from his being tortured by Satan in hell for three days and three nights. Until finally he was, a, he was born of the Spirit and was able to defeat Satan and escape hell. And this is called the ransom theory of atonement. That's what they teach. He teaches that Christ's death was a ransom paid to Satan to settle the legal claim the devil had on the human race because of Adam's sin. That's straight out of the pit of hell, folks. Straight out of the pit of hell. This is not what the Bible teaches. Christ's death was a sacrifice to God to redeem mankind of the penalty of sin, not to Satan, who started the whole mess. Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love as Christ also had loved us, and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. The Apostle John clearly tags these types when he calls them, they operate under the spirit of what? Antichrist. Antichrist. They're against Christ. They're against Christ. Now in, oh, come on Jeff, you got to get this done. Uh, now of course in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 15, 41 through 49, uh, Paul talks about the terrestrial body and the celestial body. And for time's sake, I'm not going to read through that passage. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that passage. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 41-49, he talks about the, the terrestrials and the, and the celestial bodies. So I just want to make some comments about the natural body and the new body of the celestial body. It says here in 1 Corinthians 15 that the natural body is sown in corruption. Okay? Um... When we bury these bodies, are they going to stay like this? No, they're not. I don't care how many chemicals you pump into them. They're going to decay. They're going to rot. They're going to go to dust. So they're sown in corruption. It says that the celestial body, new body, is raised in in incorruption. What does that mean? That means that the new bodies will never spoil, they'll never rot. Uh, They'll never ache and pain on rainy days like mine is right now. 
right? They'll always be fresh. They'll always be new. They'll never wear out. They'll never decay. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. Natural body is sown in dishonor because of sin. Because of sin. Paul calls them vile bodies in Philippians. That's not very flattering, is it? I don't care how pretty you are, you dwell in a vile body, a body of dishonor. It says it's raised in glory. The celestial body will possess a splendor and a brightness that will reflect the glory of God. I think it's Daniel that talks about it in his last chapter about some will shine as bright as the stars. So we're going to have a shiny body. It's sown in weakness, a natural body. It's frail, it's sickly, it's feeble. I got bad news for you. If the rapture don't happen, everybody sitting in this room is going to die. The other body, the celestial body, is going to be raised in power, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Not only physical power doesn't wear out. This is what I love. But in righteous power, holy power. Uh, I, I tell this story. When I, had, uh, when I broke my back and had, I was in severe pain, terrible pain, excruciating, paralyzing pain. So I went to have surgery to get all that repaired. And the first thing that I remembered when I came out of anesthesiology or whatever that is, anesth- whatever, the stuff that they put you to sleep, as soon as I woke up, you know what was the very first thing that I realized that came across my mind? No more pain. That's how bad it was. You know what? I'm just saying, you know what may be the very first thing that comes across our minds when we get into glory? No more sin. I don't think a lot of us realize how much sin is painful to us. Yes. And when we get into glory, I think that's going to be our first thought. No more sin. No more sin. Uh, so in a natural body or belonging uh, to breath is the wording. Uh, a sensual body subject to the passions and the appetites and the desires that this flesh uh, wants. Raise the spiritual body. Uh, a, severe, a superior body no longer subject to our passions and our appetites and those desires that get us into trouble. Because there's no more sin to appeal to. Uh, This body is a body designed for the earth. Our new bodies fit for heaven. This body bears the image of the earthy. The new body, the image of the heavenly. Guess what? The same body that Jesus has is promised to you and me. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, yeah, we shall be like him. 
Even so, come Lord Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 1-2, For we know that if our earthy, earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Eternal in the heavens. Both the earthly and the heavenly are tangible bodies, but as the sun versus the moon, there's the difference. There's a difference according to Paul. One body is fit for the earth and the other is fit for heaven. And Jesus appeared to these disciples not as a ghost, not as a phantom, not as an illusion, but he had this tangible, glorified, resurrected body that they could handle and touch. And if he wanted to, he could eat. He could eat. Confirmation and commission. Verses 44 through 48. Luke 24, he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's what he said to the uh, fellow to Emmaus. Then Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. Now Luke is quickly drawing a close uh, his gospel, and so he's kind of like hitting the highlights, kind of like skipping a stone across the surface of the pond. Um, I believe that at this time the Holy Spirit of God was moving Luke to his next work, the book of Acts. All right? And so he, he knew he was going to continue this story. So he gives some highlights here. And so just as Jesus had instructed the two men on the way to Emmaus, he does the, the, Emmaus, he does the very same thing with this group that's gathered here. And it says here that he opened their understanding. Now, I always tell you when I give you my personal opinion about something, and so I'm getting ready to give you my personal opinion about something. If you don't agree with it, that's okay. I'm not going to break fellowship. If you've got a better you know, way of looking at this, that's fine too. Uh, you know, I may adopt it, okay? But just bear with me. He opened their understanding. In John chapter 20, starting in verse 20, we have the very same scenario. Listen to John chapter 20, verses 20 through 22. And when he had so, and when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Right? Same scenario. Then were the disciples glad. When they saw the Lord, then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, so send I you. Okay, we just read that. Verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And then he starts telling these folks some things. Now I've often wondered about this receiving of the Holy Ghost. And allow me to present what I personally believe this giving of the Holy Ghost is all about at this time. At this time. 
I think the giving of the Holy Ghost was to aid them in their understanding of what he was telling them as far as the prophets and the law had to say about him and the book of Psalms had to say about him. And I believe that this giving of the Holy Ghost was what was used to open their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Exactly. Exactly. So I think Jesus gave them the Holy Ghost so that they would understand what he was saying to them about what the scripture said about him. It says that he, here in John, it says he breathed on them. Does that kind of remind you of a passage in 2 Timothy? 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. You know what that word inspiration is? God breathed. God breathed. The scriptures being the breath of God. It talks about him being given the Holy Ghost. John 16, 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. John 14, 17, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I believe what took place here in John's Gospel, I believe what took place here with Luke, is that the Lord gave a temporary gifting of the Holy Ghost in order for these people to understand what he was telling them. Yeah, this was prior to Pentecost. Because remember what it says here in John 17, for he dwelleth with you. But after Pentecost... He was in them. So I think this was a temporary bestowal of the Holy Ghost so that they could understand what he was saying to them. And it's no different with us, guys. Let me ask you a question. Can this book truly be understood and believed with mere intellect? Or does it require the Spirit of God to open this book up to what it really says. Yeah. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have, what? The mind of Christ. That's the only way you're going to learn the book. So I believe that in John 20 there was a temporary endowment of the Holy Ghost to help these folks understand what it was that Jesus was telling them concerning the scriptures about himself. Now, you can take that or you can reject it. That's fine. But that's just what I see. That's what I see. 
And he gives to these folks the promise of the permanent endowing of the Holy Ghost in verse 49. He says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Did it happen at this point right here? No, it did not. When did it happen? Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. God came through with this promise. God came through with this promise on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So can you see now why I'm saying that that giving of the Holy Ghost was a temporary endowment to help them understand what it was he was teaching them? But now, now in the church age, in the dispensation of grace, that Holy Spirit of God is now inside anyone who receives Christ as their Savior, as a permanent resident tutor or teacher of the scriptures. Does that make sense? Okay. And he says we have a message, the message of repentance and remission. Okay, this is where i got to shift it into high gear. The gospel message, and I know there's some folks who get heartburn over this. The gospel message is a message of repentance and remission. It is. Okay. Repentance is simply to have a change of mind. Remission is to be released from a bondage or penalty. Romans 6.22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have, your, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but because Christ died in my place, The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I have been liberated. Remission from that penalty, from that bondage. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now, in Acts chapter 2, after the day of Pentecost, Peter stood before the, the Jews gathered and he preached a message. And the message that he preached to the Jews gathered there on the day of Pentecost who heard in their own language what was being preached Peter preached a message of repentance and remission okay now Paul tells us we need to rightly what divide the word if you don't rightly divide the word you're going to get yourself off in the weeds okay and the book of Acts is a transitional book all right, so there's transitions taking place through the book of Acts. So you don't want to build your doctrine for the church on this transitional book. So what was going on here on the day of Pentecost? Well, on the day of Pentecost, Peter was preaching. He was empowered by the Holy Ghost, and he was preaching a message of repentance and remission. Was that an amen or? Okay, all right. <laughs> accompanied by baptism now what was going on here Israel had rejected and crucified their Messiah that's what Peter was talking about that's what was Peter was preaching and Peter's call to repentance to the Jewish people who had rejected their Messiah was to repent of that of their rejection of Jesus Christ and to believe on him as their Messiah. They had to have a change of mind in regards to who Jesus Christ was. 
They must have a complete change of mind and heart towards Jesus, whom they rejected, whom they did not receive as their own. That's what John said. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. So they had a change, they have a change of mind and heart in regards to Jesus as the Messiah. That was crucial for the Jews that Peter was preaching at. And the baptism of remission that Peter uh, talked about, because the sin that they had to be remitted of, the crime that they had committed was they crucified their Messiah. And so this baptism of remission for these Jews who had rejected the Messiah, which was their great sin, this was a condition placed upon the Jews as a sign of this change of heart and mind in regards to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Just as John the Baptist's followers were baptized in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, and this baptism was a sign of a prepared heart to receive the Messiah, these Jews on Pentecost, this baptism was a sign that they had a change of mind and that they now owned him whom they had previously disowned. There was no washing away of anything. It's not baptism that saves you. Not baptism that saves you. This particular baptism was a condition meant for the Jews only. So don't try to put that on the church, as some do. Now later on, when Peter would go and preach this very same message to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius, no mention of Baptism for the remission of sins is mentioned. Listen to what it says in Acts 10.43. This is Peter preaching in the house of Cornelius. He says to him, give all the prophets witness. That's the very thing that they're supposed to be doing. Is Hey, what does the scripture say concerning Jesus? Listen to what he says in verse 43. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. How do we receive remission of sins? By believing on him. By believing on him. Who was Peter talking to? Gentiles. Gentiles. It's not a condition on the church. Not a condition. It also says here that while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word. The only baptism that these believers received was the same baptism that anybody who believes in Jesus Christ receives. And that's the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, I'm not going to get Pentecostal on you. But I'm going to simply tell you what that means. The word baptism means to be placed into. Now what are we being placed into when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior? Well, let's listen to what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. What is that one body that we've been baptized into? The church, the body of Christ. We're now 
members of the spiritual body of Jesus Christ, the church. The church. And in regards to the Gentiles, repentance is also preached. You also have a, have a change of mind. And it's concerning our false gods or whatever else it is that we're trusting in. Those false gods that we trust in. We have to forsake those false gods. We have to have a change of mind. That's what Paul was writing about in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, some today would say, well, we don't worship or serve idols. Really? You don't think so? It may be another name. Let me share with you something I discovered a long time ago. In the Bible, uh, in regard to idolatry, uh, there's three prominent, I'll call them false religious systems. And you can see these um, false systems or these false idols and they've got all sorts of deviations but they they're basically boil down to three. You've got the worship of Baal, the worship of Moloch, and the worship of Mammon. Now the worship of Baal, Baal worship, that's the deification of nature. The deification of nature. We've all heard of Mother Nature or Mother Earth. Have you been paying attention to the narrative that we've been hearing? It's essentially nature worship. And it believes that God exists in nature and nature exists in God. And the significant aspect of this particular religion is centered in fruit-bearing. And especially, and I'm going to be polite, the reproductive faculty of all natural things. It permeates our science. It permeates our entertainment. It's, just, it's everywhere. They even sell products this way. Uh, this worship tends to an uh, ecological awareness, uh, a worship of the environmental processes, and it highlights the sensual desires of the reproductive faculties inherent in nature. Do we not see that today? The worship of Moloch is an expression of cruelty. The one significant thing about the worship of Moloch is that the people would offer their infant children as a sacrifice, human sacrifice, to this Moloch. So they would offer their children as sacrifice to Moloch. What's interesting to me is whereas the worship of Baal focuses on nature and the subsequent sensualism, And the fruit of that sensualism, the worship of Moloch, takes this very fruit 
of those given over to sensualism and sacrifices it on the altar of cruelty. Where one champions the physical act of love, the other destroys the fruit. I'm going to say it. Abortion. We, as a nation, worship at the altar of abortion. We fight for our right to worship at this altar of abortion. The third is Mammon. That's an ancient god. It's an old Phoenician, Syrian deity. And this particular god stood for power and wealth. More specifically, uh, the power that wealth provides. The power that wealth provides. Matthew 6.24, Jesus said, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So the worship of mammon is the worship of wealth and the power that wealth enables you to have. Come on, guys. Especially in social media. What are we seeing? People trying to shut down free speech because they have the mammon. The worship of mammon is the worship of wealth and the power that wealth is able to command. Its objective is to dethrone God and enthrone man. Politics, you name it. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. It's the same sin that Lucifer, now called Satan, fell under. It's that control, that power. It's little wonder to me in 1 John 5.21, one of the last books in your New Testament, it says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And I think if we all took a serious examination of our hearts, we've dabbled in in some of this. Maybe even now. Maybe even now. I don't know. These same characteristics of idolatry, I think, will be prevalent in the mystery Babylon religion, that great harlot of the tribulation period. Because it's all from the devil. So this message is a message of repentance, a change of mind in what one once believed in and trusted in and to turn to the one true God in Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Right? The only way to the Father is through him. You preach any other way to the Father except for Jesus Christ, you're preaching a false gospel. And then in wrapping it all up in Luke 24, 50 through 53, he says, And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass when he, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Of course, Luke leaves out a lot, right? He leaves out the, 
the days prior to Pentecost, a lot of things that Luke, uh, John talks about in his gospel. So he leaves out a lot. So he's, he's wrapping it all up real quick. But the lesson is there. The message is there. The same Lord that ascended into heaven, guess what? He's coming back. He's coming back. And in the time that he tarries, what should we be doing? Being witnesses of these things. Being witnesses of these things. Here's a sobering thought, guys. And I think one that we really don't appreciate. Do you realize we're the only ones on this planet who have the message of hope for a, for a world that's living in hopelessness? We are. We are the only ones. And we're going to be held accountable for that. What are you doing with that message? What are you doing with that message? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that he came, he died, was buried and rose again. His rising again gives us hope. He is our hope. Oh, God in heaven, empower us by the spirit that dwells within us that we would share this hope with others with every opportunity. We thank you and praise you. We know you're coming back soon. We're looking at the signs of the times. Father in heaven, let us not be idle. And let us not succumb to idols. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So that's it. We're done with Luke. So I think for the next uh, book, I think I'm going to teach you the book of Concordance.